Good morning, if you will turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Hebrews, chapter 7. And if you are following along in a pew Bible, you will find our passage on page 694. Hebrews, chapter 7. And as you find your place, if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be reading the first 10 verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hear the Word of the Lord this morning. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Father, I pray that you will give us wisdom this morning to understand your word. And I pray that as your spirit gives us insight and understanding, that he also will affect our hearts and cause us to see and treasure Christ above everything else. And so, God, please have your way amongst us this morning. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Highway hypnosis is a condition I'm sure that anyone who has driven a lengthy uh, drive has experienced before. Um, Highway hypnosis or white line fever is when you drive usually for an extended distance and you essentially go into autopilot. Um, You'll arrive at your destination without any recollection of the trip and the chance of this happening is usually heightened by fatigue. Uh, But it can also occur if your mind is preoccupied by other things and the monotony of the road essentially puts you to sleep with your eyes open. So you are going through the motions, you are are still aware of uh, other cars, but you are so distracted by your your own thoughts that you have no recollection of the trip when you get there. Uh, You still go through the motions, but your thoughts are elsewhere, and 
if it's ever happened to you, and, and I'm sure I'm not the only one in here that this has happened to, it's very disconcerting when you get to your destination and you realize, I have no idea how I got here. But this phenomenon, it's, it's not uh, unique to driving, however. Um, it can happen even when you're reading. Anyone who has read a few pages of a book only to stop and realize, I have no idea what I just read, has experienced this same kind of phenomenon. And again, this usually happens when we're tired or our minds are distracted by other thoughts. We sit down to relax with a good book, but where our minds are so focused on other things that are going on in our lives that we go through the motions of reading, but we don't benefit from what we've read. We don't remember the words. And so what do we have to do? You got to go back and reread it, right? Because our attention is elsewhere. Unfortunately, this happens when we read our Bibles also. Um, not only can we suffer from tiredness and distracted thoughts while we're reading the scriptures, but we can also become so accustomed to the stories and we, we grow so accustomed to, to hearing the same things over and over and over again that we, we rush through particular passages or, or we find them confusing or unimportant and so we just skim over them. And we're not benefiting. We're going through the motions of reading, but when we come to the end of a passage, we realize, I don't even know what I read. I haven't even understood this passage. And if you are a good Christian, you go back and reread it. <laughs> but many of us, uh, we just go on. We just continue through. Now, this is probably the case with this very brief account of Abraham's meeting of Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. It's, it's tucked between God's original promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he tells Abraham to leave his, his home and go to the place that he will show him. He's going to bless him. He's going to give him a place. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That's a big passage. Then on the other side is Genesis 15. This is another big passage when the angel of the Lord appears to Abram in a vision and, and he, he promises to Abram that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And, and Abram believes the word of God and it's counted to him, it's reckoned to him as righteousness and God cuts a covenant with him and walks between the two pieces of this animal uh, making a promise to Abraham. And so we've got this big passage over here on, the, on the, the, the start of Abraham's story. And we've got this big passage in Genesis chapter 15 and then kind of tucked in between and, and often lost. And it's surrounded by difficult to pronounce names that Jay read admirably this morning. Um, we've got this, this weird story, this weird little story that's easy to forget. It's easy to forget Genesis chapter 14. But not so for the author of Hebrews. In fact, the, the account of Melchizedek, which is only three verses, is absolutely essential to his theology of Christ's priesthood. It's absolutely vital to understanding what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at so we can't go into autopilot when it comes to this story. If you'll remember, the writer of Hebrews, he brought up the topic of Jesus' priesthood in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. 
In those verses, we saw five ways in which Jesus met and even exceeded the qualifications needed for him to be the great high priest for his people. And central to this idea is found in chapter 5, verse 10. He's designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But in the next verse, chapter 5, verse 11, he says about this, about Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so he has to take a detour in chapter 5, verse 12, through chapter 6, verse 20, to both give a strong warning against falling away and to give an equally strong encouragement to persevere and hold on to the hope that is found in Jesus, the forerunner into God's presence on our behalf, verse 20, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so he circles back around to his original theme that he, he mentioned in chapter 5. He's encouraged these believers to press on to maturity. He stated, this we will do. We will press on to maturity if God permits. And now he's going to teach them this doctrine of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. And it's important that they get this. They're tempted to return to the Levitical priesthood. And so he's at great pains to demonstrate that the scriptures always anticipated a greater priesthood than the Levites and that Jesus is that priest. That's what he's doing. It, it's, it's absolutely central to everything that he's, he's dealing with in this book. He has got to show that it's foolishness to leave. It's foolishness to go back to the Levitical priesthood. It's foolishness to go back to the Jerusalem temple and the animal sacrifices because the scriptures always anticipated something greater and now he's come. And so he's going to do this by taking a close look at Genesis chapter 14. He doesn't skip it. He doesn't skim like a detective, he's going to break out the magnifying glass and he's going to examine all the pieces of the story and he's going to show us how they all fit together. And how he does this will help us to not only see Jesus as the fulfillment of the superior priesthood, but it will also show us how to read our Bibles. He's going to show us in the way that he's interpreting this passage in Genesis 14, he's going to show us how we should read our Bibles also, not on autopilot and not in highway hypnosis mode, but as divinely inspired events recorded inerrantly in every respect in order to perfectly point to Jesus. And so I really have two goals this morning, one primary and one secondary. The primary goal is I want to help you to understand the superior priesthood of Jesus. Because that's the main point. That's the main point of, of chapter 5 through chapter 10 is to show that Jesus is superior to everything that's going on in Jerusalem. But then the secondary goal is going to happen kind of passively, and that's to help you understand how to read and understand your Bible better. To hone in on some of these lesser-known stories, some of these more difficult stories, and see how the New Testament authors deal with these Old Testament passages. And so we're going to see this as we go through. And, and so the outline, it's, I've got three points. 
The first is we're going to see the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. That's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. And then we're going to see five ways in which Melchizedek points to Christ. And then we're going to put it all together. We're going to see the story. We're going to see how Melchizedek points specifically to Jesus. And then we're going to put it all together. So let's look beginning at chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to jump to Genesis 14. And we're going to try to understand this story. He writes in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. The account of Melchizedek was well known and it was often discussed in Jewish theology even before the New Testament. And there were several competing interpretations of who exactly Melchizedek was, a man or, or was he a spiritual being? Some Jewish scholars even suggested that Melchizedek was Noah's son Shem. They were acquainted with it. They were acquainted with the story, but um, we aren't. It's one of those uh, smaller stories, confusing stories, and so we need to become more acquainted with it before we can go into the argument that's found in the rest of Hebrews chapter 7. So mark Hebrews chapter 7 and turn with me to Genesis chapter 14, and we're going to walk through this story very quickly. And I'm not going to read these difficult names because Jay has already done the hard part for me. But it will be helpful if you have your eyes on the page. Genesis chapter 14. The story actually begins in chapter 13 where Abram and his nephew Lot are in a disagreement. They're Herds have grown too large. They can't stay in the same place together anymore. And so they have to go their separate ways. Abram tells Lot, pick whatever part of the land you want to go to. You go that direction. I'll go the opposite direction. Lot turns towards the south and says, this looks like the very garden of God. And he goes and he lives there. And Abram turns north and he goes into another part of the land. Lot has chosen to settle outside that famous city of Sodom. Now chapter 14. We don't have a date, but sometime after the separation of Abram and Lot, uh, Kedah Laomer, king of Elam, which is in modern-day Iraq, and three ally kings rule over five vassal city-states in southern Canaan. So, Cadalaomer, uh, he's over in Iraq. He's got three other kings that he's in an alliance with. There's four kings. They have raided Canaan, the southern part of Canaan, and for 12 years they have, have uh, conquered these, these five city-states, and they are vassals that have to give, uh, they have to give a tribute to Cadalaomer for 12 years. But in the 13th year, these five city-states and their kings have had enough. And so they rebel against the four rulers. So you've got four rulers led by Cadalaomer. You've got these five kings that are in southern Canaan. All right, got to keep all these pieces together because we're not familiar with these names. 
So Cadaleomer, he leads his allied forces through Canaan, defeating anyone in his path. And so he would have gone up through Mesopotamia and come down to the south of Canaan. And the strength of his army is highlighted in the names of the people that he defeated. Names that, if you're honest with yourself, you just skimmed right over, didn't you? The Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Amim, and the Horites. Why are these so significant? They're all, uh, they are all believed to have been giants. Different names for giants. These four kings are giant slayers. That's why these names are being given to us. We're supposed to see Cadaleomer and his three allies are coming through and they're stomping on the giants. Well, no matter. The kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Bela, which is later named Zoar, these five city-states that are at the southern tip of the Dead Sea, they decide that there's five against four. doesn't matter if they're defeating giants. We're going to go and we're going to fight them. So they go out to fight against Cadaleomer and his three allies, and they lose because they're going out to fight against giant killers. And so they lose. And so Cadaleomer, he loots the cities, and he carries away the captives. And, oh, by the way, he takes Lot with him. Lot, who has made his home in the wrong place. And this, kind of by sidetrack, this event where he gets kidnapped and taken away is probably why the next time we see Lot, he's living inside the city. He decided, I need some walls. All right, a survivor. A survivor comes in uh, verse 13. The survivor comes to Abram where he's living, and he reports what's happening. It's probably because Abram is a great man by this time. Um, I think often we, we think that Abram and Sarai are just living out in the middle of nowhere in just a few tents, but that's not what we see here. Abram actually has 318 trained men who he takes with him into battle. He is a great man, he's a powerful man, he's a rich man, and so the survivor comes and tells him what's happened and that Lot, his nephew, has been carried away into captivity. And so Abram and his 318 trained men and his allies, so Abram's not going by himself, Mamre, Eshkol, and Aner, the, they've got three allies with Abram, they're ready to fight. And so now we have four verses five again. Didn't work out the first time for the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their allies, but now Abram and his allies are going to go and fight Cadoleomer. But this time the battle goes against Cadoleomer, and Abram and his allies chase the giant killers all the way north of Damascus, which is in Syria. So they don't just chase them out of Canaan, they chase them far, far away into the north. And they return with all of the captured loot and all the captives. They have stripped Cadaleomer and his allies of everything that they had won in their battle. And now come the most pertinent verses for our text today, verses 17 through 24. Abram returns to the King's Valley outside of Salem, uh, Psalm chapter 76, verse 2, tells us that Salem was the original name of Jerusalem. 
Psalm 76, verse 2, God's abode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So Abram, he comes back with the spoils of war to this valley outside of Salem or Jerusalem. This would be on the east side of Salem, and he's met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom tells Abram to keep the spoils of war, return the prisoners, but you can keep everything else. But Abram refuses because he has sworn by Yahweh, the God of heaven, God most high, that he is not going to take anything from this king. The reason for this is that the king is going to boast of making Abram rich. And thus, Abraham is then going to become indebted to the king of Sodom. He's not going to do this. The king priest of Salem Melchizedek, however, he brings bread and wine to refresh Abram. He blesses Abram in the name of God Most High. And Abram, on his part, gives to Melchizedek a tithe or a tenth of everything. And that's all we hear about Melchizedek. That's it. Three verses. That's all we hear about Melchizedek until Psalm 110 Verse 4, which reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's it. That's all we have. And that's why I think a lot of us just kind of skim over the story. We just kind of throw it away. But it's not a story that we have to skim over. It's not a throwaway story. It's not told by Moses in Genesis for entertainment value. It's not told as simple historical record. It has theological importance as the author of Hebrews is about to show us. But what are some things that we can take from this story and how the the author of Hebrews is going to interpret it? The first is that God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history. These events did not happen randomly. They, They didn't happen accidentally. This is not just, just some random story that Moses decided, ah, this, this will kind of fill in, uh, this gets me to my word count. God ordained these events to occur in the exact way they did. The, these events are under God's sovereign power, and so the, the whole rebellion of these five kings against Cadalamer, the, the, the war, them carrying Lot away, which drags Abram into the conflict, him coming back, and only two kings come out to meet him, and one of them happens to be Melchizedek. All of these things, not accidental, they are under God's sovereign power in order to communicate and foreshadow future events. The second thing is that scripture is divinely inspired. The Spirit carried Moses along to record these events in a very specific way. Every detail included, and as we'll see back in Hebrews chapter 7, even the things that are excluded are intentional. The Spirit inspires exactly what is written. Not one word less and not one word more. Third, David, who was also a king of Salem, understood these things. 
And reflecting upon Genesis chapter 14 and inspired by the Spirit of God, he wrote of a future greater king priest, his promised descendant of whom Melchizedek was but a type and a shadow. Psalm 110, written by David, was understood to be messianic even by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. David's picking up on what Moses has written and he's saying there's going to be a greater king priest who is coming. And fourth, the author of Hebrews, he takes Genesis 14, 18 through 20 and he takes Psalm 110. He puts them together and he confidently proclaims that Jesus is this king priest. He is a great high priest superior to the Levitical priesthood which served in the temple in Jerusalem and it is in this great high priest that these Christians ought to put all of their trust. That's the big picture. The big picture, the story of Melchizedek in particular and how the author of, of, of Psalm 110 and how the author of Hebrews is reading and interpreting each other. And so the author of Hebrews is looking back through all of these things. He's looking back through, through what has happened in his own life and in the life of the apostles. He's looking back over the Old Testament. He's putting all the pieces together and he's helping us to understand how the text interrelate. So this is how we're supposed to read our Bibles. They're not just individual stories that we just pick out of context and, and, and just read for historical information. We just want to be good at Bible trivia. All of these stories from Genesis 1 all the way through Gen or Revelation 22, they all are telling one massive story about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews understands this. We need to understand it too. And once we get this, once, once we grab this and, and fully understand it, it is going to revolutionize the Bible for you. You're going to see it as so much bigger. So that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to do. He's picking up on all of these clues and now he has to show how Jesus fulfills this Melchizedekian priesthood. He's drawing on this story, but how does this, how does this point to Jesus? So far in Hebrews, he's shown that Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Joshua. He's begun to show how Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood, and he's going to drive his point home and accomplish this by showing how Jesus is the better than or the greater than and the fulfillment of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is just a, he's just a type pointing forward to a greater, superior reality. And so now in verses 2 through, through um, 6, we are going to see Five ways in which Melchizedek points to Christ. So go back to Hebrews chapter 7 and let's look. Five ways in which Melchizedek points to Christ. Verse 2. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. 
The first way in which Melchizedek points to Christ is his name. His name. His name actually means something. Melchizedek. It's actually made up of two Hebrew words. Melech is king. Sedek is righteousness. Put them together. He's the king of righteousness. That's what his name means. Or you could call him the righteous king. A lot of questions have been asked about Melchizedek. Is Melchizedek a pagan king who worships a, a god who, who Abram corrects? Or does he worship the one true God? And, and how, if he worships the one true God, how does Melchizedek know about this one true God? So many questions. It would seem from Genesis chapter 14 and how it's interpreted in Hebrews that Melchizedek does indeed worship the one true living God. He's not worshiping some pagan deity that Abram is, is kind of the syncretist and he's coming along and saying, you worship one God, I worship one God too. Must be the same God. Abram recognizes that Melchizedek is worshiping the same God. Now we don't have any details about this, but it has been suggested from the genealogy of Genesis chapter 11 that Noah's son Shem may have still been alive at this time. There are some that even look at the, the timeline of these genealogies and say that Shem actually lived longer uh, than this time period. And that since that's the case, that Noah's sons are still alive, that true religion hasn't been completely and utterly corrupted. And so this would explain how Melchizedek knows about this one true God and because that, that knowledge is still around. Whatever the case may be, it is striking that God preserved pure worship in a land surrounded by paganism and idolatry, where cities like Sodom and Gomorrah flourished. But one truth that we can, we can nail down, one truth that we can hold on to is that no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how, how pagan the culture is, God can always preserve a people for himself. And that's what we see here in Genesis chapter 14. Even though it's in a pagan culture, even though there are city-states as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah to the south of him, God in his gracious sovereignty has preserved a king priest who worships the one true living God. And he's a righteous king. He's a king of righteousness. But this king of righteousness was only a foreshadowing of the truly righteous king. We've already seen this in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is um, the king who loves righteousness. His scepter is righteousness. Psalm 72, a psalm of Solomon, looking forward to this greater king, says, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. 
Isaiah chapter 9, again, a prophecy of this coming king says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justiceness, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus is the truly righteous king. He keeps the law of God perfectly. But not only is Jesus righteous, he gives to us his righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 23 Verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. We're sinners. We're often more like the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah than we are like Abraham or Melchizedek. But through faith in Christ, God clothes sinners in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. We are counted as righteous in God's sight, not by our works, but by the works of Christ. And Melchizedek, the righteous king, is pointing forward to this greater reality, to this greater king of righteousness. But not only is his name pointing to Jesus, the location of his kingship is pointing to Jesus. It tells us not only his name, which by translation is king of righteousness, but he is also king of Salem. That is king of peace. That's what shalom means it means peace melchizedek is the king of peace he is the peaceful king it's hard to ignore the fact that there are nine kings that are warring in genesis chapter 14 nine kings that are battling with each other and there's one king who doesn't it's melchizedek he's not listed he's not listed in the war he comes out, he's the peaceful king. But as fascinating as that is, there is a king who establishes perfect peace. He is the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. But he's better than Melchizedek. For he not only rules in peace, but he himself, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he himself is our peace reconciling us both to God and to each other. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. More than a location, we have a person. Melchizedek, he, he reigned over Salem, the peaceful place. But Jesus, he brings true 
perfect, lasting peace. He reconciles us to God. We are no longer enemies, but we are reconciled to God. We have peace through Jesus' cross. And so the author of Hebrews says that his name is king of righteousness. His, his place of, of ruling is, is king of peace. But thirdly, he, Melchizedek points to Jesus by his perpetuity. And I just wanted to use that word. Perpetuity. His foreverness. His foreverness. And this is where questions arise. Who is Melchizedek really? Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Who is he? Was he a man or was he a spiritual being? Christians who interpret Melchizedek as more than a man, they typically believe that he was a Christophany or that he was an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. This verse is the strongest argument for this view, but, but I want to give you four quick reasons why I don't believe that Melchizedek was a Christophany. Four quick reasons that I, I want to give that he's not a Christophany, that he's a man. And then we'll go back to verse 3 and we'll explain what verse 3 means. The first reason I don't think that he's a Christophany is because verse 3 says that he resembles the Son of God. That word, it, it can be translated as he, he's compared to the Son of God or he's similar to the Son of God. A, a similar word is used in chapter 7, verse 15, where it says, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. So it, it goes the other way. Melchizedek is resembling the Son of God. The Son of God resembles or is in the likeness of Melchizedek. The argument, it doesn't carry the same weight for me if Christ and Melchizedek are the same person. But again, that's not what the author says. He doesn't say he is the Son of God. He says he resembles the Son of God. The second reason is the timeline of Christ's priesthood. The timeline of Christ's priesthood. Chapter 2, verse 17 says that, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Chapter 5, verse 10 says that he's designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6, verse 20 Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, became the great high priest for his people. This is, this is the whole argument of why he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It's so that he could be our priest. And so if he has been a priest in Genesis 14, if that was him serving as priest, it messes with the argument of Hebrews. The third is that Melchizedek was an established political figure of a real place. This isn't a metaphor. Melchizedek was a king of Salem, which was a real city. Throughout the Old Testament, Every instance of the angel of the Lord is always momentary and brief. The angel of the Lord appears, he delivers a message to a prophet, 
and then he disappears again. This would be completely out of place. This would be completely unique if, if Melchizedek was, in fact, the angel of the Lord. He's established as a political figure in a real place. When did he show up? When did he leave? It all seems to be very confusing. But I think what the author of Hebrews is doing is that he's looking at the structure of Genesis. He's looking at the actual structure of Genesis. The book of Genesis, it's structured by 10 Toledote passages or genealogies. So you're going to run across this phrase again and again and again in Genesis. These are the generations of. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah or, or Shem or Isaac or Jacob. And so the author of Hebrews is not just noticing what Moses wrote in Genesis, but what he didn't write in Genesis. In a book where all of the important characters have a genealogy, there is one who appears and disappears without a trace. And rather than seeing this as an oversight or as simply unimportant, the writer of Hebrews sees in Moses' restraint divine inspiration. He sees that Moses is writing exactly what the Spirit wants him to write. And if he doesn't write something, it's because the Spirit didn't want him to write it. So in this book that is surrounded by genealogies, it's actually structured by genealogies, here's someone who seems really important who doesn't have one. So for those four reasons, I don't think we should see Melchizedek as divine. I think he was an actual historical man who was a king priest in the city of Salem. But in God's sovereignty, Melchizedek was ordained to prefigure or foreshadow Jesus by the details of his life that Moses wrote down. And so back to verse 3, it says that he's without father, he's without mother, He's without genealogy, he's without beginning of days, he's without end of life. The author of Hebrews is not saying that Melchizedek literally didn't have these, but that they're not recorded in the scriptures. And this is key to the writer's point. The priest who served in the Jerusalem temple, they had to descend from the tribe of Levi. The high priest had to be able to trace his lineage back to Aaron himself. And the genealogical purity was so important that after the return from the Babylonian captivity, anyone desiring to serve as a priest who couldn't produce genealogical proof of, of being descended from Levi or from Aaron was excluded from serving. We can see this in Ezra chapter 2 verse 62 and Nehemiah chapter 7 verses 64 and 65. The priest under the law, the priests who served at the temple in Jerusalem, they had to have documentation of where they came from. It had to say on their birth certificate, this is a person descended from Levi. And if you couldn't prove that, if you didn't have a genealogy tracing yourself back, you could not serve. They didn't simply say, eh, that was a clerical oversight. They said, you are excluded. And this is the point. The point is that scripture has always anticipated a priesthood that was not dependent on genealogy. The scriptures have always anticipated a priest 
who would come not from Levi, but he would serve depending on something more powerful than genealogical proof. And we see this in chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, not based on genealogy, but by the power of an indestructible life. Melchizedek's death wasn't recorded in Scripture. So in a sense, we can say he's still alive. Not that he's walking around somewhere still, but that it's not recorded. But Jesus is better. Jesus suffered death on the cross, and on the third day, he rose from the grave. He lives forever, and he serves as the great high priest of his people forever. That's what verse 3 means. It's pointing to the fact that, that Melchizedek doesn't have a father listed or a mother or a genealogy. We don't know about his birth. We don't know about his death. He's pointing forward to someone greater, someone who really does live forever. And this is what the scriptures were anticipating all along. Melchizedek points to Christ by his name, the location of his kingdom, his perpetuity or his foreverness. He also points to Christ by the honor that he received the honor he received. Verses four through six. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. The Levitical priests were given no inheritance in the promised land. When the land was divided in the book of Joshua among the tribes of Israel, none was given to the tribe of Levi because they were told that the Lord was their inheritance. They were the ones chosen by God to work and serve in the tabernacle and, and later in the temple. But instead, the Levites were given the tithe from Israel's sacrifices. So the gifts that were brought to the tabernacle, a portion of those were used to provide for the needs of the priest since the priests ministered in the temple. Think of it as, as kind of like their wages. They're serving in the tabernacle. What do they eat? They eat from the tithe. They're given a tithe from the food that's brought in so that they have sustenance. They're given of the gifts so that they can maintain their needs. The, these gifts were given for the priests. This was prescribed in the law. It's found in Numbers chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 18. And they were given these tithes even though the Levites as well as the other tribes were all descended from Abraham. They all could trace their line back through Jacob and Isaac to Abraham. They all were brothers. And even though they were brothers, the law still prescribed the other tribes to bring a tithe to the Levites. They were given this special privilege, this special honor. But now, verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. 
see or behold or consider. It's in the imperative. Think upon this. Don't just gloss over this. Think about it. See how the Israelites give a tithe to the Levites, even though they're brothers. Now consider that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. See how great a man this was. Abraham here is called the patriarch. He's given that title of honor. Genesis chapter 20, verse 7, he's called a prophet. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, and Isaiah 41, verse 8, Abraham is called a friend of God. All these titles, they, they exalt Abraham. He is the patriarch. He is the one who has given immense honor in Israel. He pays a tithe to this king priest. As one commentator points out, Melchizedek becomes Abram's priest. In other words, Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the 12 tribes, have had a Melchizedekian priest. And he gave to him a tithe, giving him that honor and that prestige. See how great he is that Abraham, this exalted one, pays a tithe to someone even greater. Now the true and better Melchizedekian priest has come. How much more does he do? How much more should he be given? If Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek and someone even greater than Melchizedek has appeared, what should he be given? Not simply a tenth, but he should be given your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And the fifth way in which Melchizedek points to Christ is in the blessing that he conferred. The blessing he conferred. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, but the end of verse 6 says, Melchizedek blessed him who had the promises. Abram gave to Melchizedek, but he also received from Melchizedek. Melchizedek recognized and acknowledged the God he and Abram worshipped. He recognized that God had given promises to Abram. And so he prays to God to bless Abram. And likewise, he praises God. He acts as a mediator between Abram and God. That's what's happening here. God has given promises to Abram. Melchizedek is acting as Abram's priest and he's, bless, he's blessing him, saying, may God most high bless you. Similarly, the Levitical priests were to bless Israel. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Again, Melchizedek, he who was a priest apart from the law or, or a particular genealogy, he served as priest to Abram. Abram, the one who had the promises. Melchizedek receives a tithe from him and he blesses Melchizedek in the name of God. And Christ Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And we have received more in Christ than even Abram received from Melchizedek. The end of Luke's gospel says that Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, which incidentally is in the same direction as the King's Valley of Genesis chapter 14. And he lifts up his hands and he blesses them. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Think of the Beatitudes or the blessings of Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. Those who are trusting in Christ, the true priest after the order of Melchizedek, are the only truly blessed ones. And so through his name, the location of his kingship, his foreverness, the tithes that he received and the blessings that he gave, all of these things together are pointing forward to Jesus. So let's put this together with verses 7 through 10. Let's, let's quickly put this together. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. He's pointing out what he's already put all these pieces together to show. Melchizedek, in blessing Abram, reveals that he's greater than Abram. The superior one is the one who blesses the lesser one. And the author of Hebrews says it's beyond dispute. This is massive theologically. This person that you probably have never even thought about. The author of Hebrews is saying he's greater than Abram. Verse 8. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Israel pays tithes to priests who are mortal men. The Greek literally says dying men. They pay it to men who are dying. And he's, gonna, he's going to expand and he's going to hit upon this more as we go through chapter 7 and 8. Israel pays to dying men, but Abram paid tithes to a priest to whom it's testified he lives. In verses 9 and 10, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Uh, we have a hard time with this because we don't think in these, these categories in, in the West. We don't, we don't think about this in our culture. But this would have, would, would have rung true for the Jewish recipients of this letter. Abraham was in a covenantal relationship with his progeny. Similar, we can think to Adam and his covenantal relationship with all of mankind. So when Adam was in the garden, he represented Everyone who will ever live. And so when Adam sinned, it's like all of you sinned too. It's like you were in the garden with him. And that's what he's saying about Abraham here. Abraham was in a covenantal relationship with his children. And so what Abraham did was, was acting in the place of his, his later descendants. And so in a sense, you could say that, that when Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Levi was paying a tithe to Melchizedek also. And thus the Levitical priests, these who receive tithes from their fellow Israelites, who, who have this exalted, this, this honorific position of receiving tithes from, from their brothers, he paid this honor to another priest. He paid to Melchizedek. The Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. That's the point of this entire thing. 
there's a lot of confusing things in here. And if it's the first time you're hearing about Melchizedek, a lot of it is it, you're going to have to process it. But here's the main point. The Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical one. The priest, after the order of Melchizedek, serves as a priest outside of the Mosaic law, outside of the law given at Mount Sinai. He's unhindered by genealogical requirements. He doesn't have to trace his line back to Levi. And this priest has always been anticipated in the scriptures. This is not something new that the author of Hebrews is, is, is creating out of his own mind. He's, he's, not, he's not trying to think, all right, how can I argue for Jesus being a priest? He just looks at the scripture and he says, the Old Testament always anticipated this. The Old Testament has always said a greater priest is coming. The prophet Zechariah even anticipates the office of king and priest being united in one person. A king priest, just like Melchizedek. And so from Genesis 14 to Psalm 110 to the New Testament, this, this theme has been teased out by the author of Hebrews, and he's saying all of this finds its fulfillment in Jesus. In other words, Melchizedek was greater than the Levitical priest. Jesus is even better. Jesus is even greater than the Levitical priest because he's greater than Melchizedek. Jesus is the true king of righteousness, living in perfect obedience to God's law and who gives perfect righteousness to those who trust in him. We are sinners. We have fallen we have been in rebellion against God. We are stained with sin. There is a king priest who gives perfect righteousness. He's the true king of peace. He makes peace between God and man by his cross. All of us come into this world hostile to God. In rebellion against God. This great Melchizedekian priest, this king of peace, he makes peace between us and God by his cross. And all who turn to Christ, trusting his death alone, are reconciled to God and they experience true peace. Paul writes of the peace that passes all understanding. It comes through this priest. His priesthood is not based upon genealogy, but upon his indestructible life. The eternal son of God who has no beginning took humanity upon himself. The immortal took upon himself mortality. And he died. And he's been raised. He'll never die again. And as such, he lives as priest forever. His priesthood, unlike the, the priesthood of the Levitical priests who are dying men, his priesthood will never come to an end because he lives forever to intercede for his people. He deserves more than just a tithe. He deserves everything. Revelation chapter 5 says that he's worthy to receive all power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And those who belong to him 
they receive real, lasting, eternal blessedness. Blessed are those who are trusting in Christ. This is your priest. Christian, this is your priest. This is why he took such great pains in, in chapter 6 to warn them against this dullness, against this laziness and this immaturity and shallowness because he wants them to see the glory of their priest. He didn't want them to be content with just a surface level understanding of who Jesus is. He wants them to know all the riches that they have in Christ that this priest belongs to them. This priest belongs to you. And so the message to the Hebrews is clear. There is only one true high priest. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. To leave Jesus in order to worship at the Jerusalem temple with the Levitical priests who offered animal sacrifices is utter foolishness. There is salvation found in no one else except this Melchizedekian priest. This priest who actually saves his people from their sins. And the same message that was delivered to these Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago is the same message that's being delivered to you today. There, there is no amount of good works. There is no other priest. There are no other religious practices that will bring you close to God. Nothing but Christ alone is our hope. This is why he told them at the end of chapter 6, this is the one to whom we fled for refuge. This is our hope, like an anchor, anchoring us to the throne of God, where Jesus has gone as our Melchizedekian priest. So cling to him. Cling fast to him. Don't, don't leave him. Don't grow lazy or dull of hearing. Don't become hypnotized and skim through the scriptures in an unthinking way. Search the Bible for him. Meditate upon him. Love him. Obey him. Because it is only in this Melchizedekian priest that you will find all of your righteousness, all of your peace, all of your hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the Old Testament and thank you for the, the prophets who wrote, inspired by your spirit, carried along by the spirit to write exactly what you wanted them to say. We thank you for the New Testament apostles and prophets who, who interpreted the Old Testament in light of the coming of Christ, who were thinking upon Christ's coming and, and his incarnation and his death and his resurrection and his glorification. And they, they looked back at the Old Testament and they saw that the Spirit gave them understanding to see how it all fits together and points to Christ. We thank you for their example of how to read the Scriptures. God, I pray that your people here today who are also filled with your Spirit 
would be able to understand what's been written. A prayer, our eyes will be open to see the glories of Christ in all the pages of the Bible. Forgive us, God, for our laziness. Forgive us of the times when we are dull of hearing. These are difficult things. And yet you have given us of your spirit. And we are confident that your people will press on to maturity and that they will cling to the hope that's found in Christ. I pray that they will be encouraged, God. I pray that they will see the glories of Christ and it will cause them to love him more and to worship him more and to obey him more. God, we pray for those here who have never trusted in Christ, who are looking for salvation, looking for contentment, looking for hope anywhere but Jesus. We pray, God, that your spirit would cause them to see this one great high priest who ever lives to save those who come to him. And God, we pray that Christ will be magnified. We thank you that we have this great high priest. Help us to love him and to be faithful to him and help us to proclaim his glories more and more. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.